Hello and welcome back to the conversation here on the right side, or TSRI, as we have now decided to call it, although I still think it sounds like some kind of a medical device, but there you go. Today we are very lucky and very happy to be joined by Corkman Sam Bowman. Sam is in London, tucked away somewhere. He is the senior fellow at the Adam Smith Institute, one of Europe's premier uh, think tanks, formerly self-described as libertarian. Now, because of Sam Bowman, neoliberal. Is it still neoliberal, Sam? Yes, yes, uh, still sticking around. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Although I don't know I'm just being liberal. Or just call it John... In the, in the same way as we call ourselves Berkey and Tories. Just why not call it John, John Stuart Mill Liberals? Yeah, my view is whatever is clearest to people. Whatever, um, I don't really care about the name of the the name of the word or the label. But um, if it helps other people understand quickly what um, what we believe or what I believe, then I'm happy to use it. I'll call myself anything, really. <laughs> and it is, it's the big thing, this is reclaiming the title, isn't it? You're reclaiming yeah. it. So, well, I don't suppose it will be surprised when today we're discussing COVID-19, we're discussing the, the coronavirus. Now, uh, talking particularly because, because of two articles, uh, Toby Young ha- wrote an article in The Critic, basically entitled, Has the Government Overreacted to the Corona Crisis? And it's Toby's attempt to basically perform an economic analysis of what the costs of the government re- the governmental reaction to the current crisis, as opposed to what the putative costs would be had it, if it were to act in a slightly le- in a less restrictive way. And it's his answer to the question, are we looking at a situation where the cure is actually worse than the disease, that the economic harm, and therefore potentially actually the harm to health and the health welfare and the loss of lives of people caused by a severe economic downturn, Will actually be greater than what we would otherwise have experienced. Now, Sam has reacted, and then I, I say this, even if Sam wasn't here, I would say it, in an article which I really, I enjoyed and admired, not simply because I agreed with it, or Sam agrees with me, but rather because I think it's a really good example, Sam, of you engaged with Toby Young's argument. It's not a piece of invective, it's not polemic, it's not personal, this I don't know if this is something you've noticed, Sophia, but one of the things I find really depressing about this whole debate is that, to a degree, so much of the discussion has been based in a, in like a football fan system, where it's almost like if you know somebody's position in Britain or Ireland on, on Brexit, you can predict what their position is going to be regarding yeah. the reaction of the government to this handling crisis. If they like Trump or they don't like Trump, you can predict how they, are, how they think we should react to the crisis. It's almost like, well, that, that's my team, and I'm not really interested in looking at what the facts are, trying to analyse what is a complicated and difficult thing. But no, you, you choose a team and you go, that's kind of depressing. I, uh, or am, I, am I wrong? No, I, I've noticed the same thing. And also, um, there's been a kind of interesting um, kind of sense of, um, if you, there's, there's sort of tribal loyalty. Some people have a sort of loyalty to the Conservative Party, so, um, you know, and that colours their view. But there's also then the sort of identity of kind of are you pro-expert or anti-expert mm. or are you kind of pro-establishment or anti-establishment? And um, it's kind of weird, really, because I think for some time in the UK, um, I think so far the UK health authorities uh, haven't done a very good job um, and, for example, spent a lot longer to um, kind of make the decision to go into 
kind of lockdown type um, circumstances than any comparable country um, and have been really poor so far at rolling out testing. Um, and there are kind of identifiable reasons for that. You know, for example, Public Health England, which is the public health authority, has tried to do the testing in a very centralized way. So even though there are lots of private labs and university labs that could be doing testing, Public Health England sort of wants to ha- have a grip on the whole thing for some reason. Why is that? That I find that because this is the same experience in the United States. Initially, they wanted to keep it basically at a single lab at a federal level, and it was a disaster. Now they've loosened it up and they've basically allowed, in a sense, the market to operate and, and, and other, other uh, suppliers to get involved, and it's starting to work much much more quickly. Why do you think there's this... Resistance. I, to I I really I really don't know. I mean, I could I could try to kind of pathologize it and say that um, obviously the healthcare system in the UK is very centralized in general. Um, but I think if you know that might be unfair, sure. and I think possibly um, it's to do with uncertainty about the reliability. I mean, there are lots of reports of um, attempts of doing antibody tests, which would test for people who whether they've had it or not. Yeah, and if those are unreliable then you're perhaps putting people into harm's way and yeah. perhaps even doing more harm than good. So I can see I can see why there might be some reluctance about that kind of thing. But um, one way or another, it's clear that the UK is lagging behind um, comparable countries on lots of, in lots of ways. And kind of to go back to this original question, it's, it's weird seeing people who um, seem to, you know, it's weird seeing people's faith in experts predict whether they have confidence in the, what the government is doing rather than... Um, you know, then just judging for themselves um, on the evidence or, or on their best judgment of the evidence. And and by that, I don't mean them necessarily looking at epidemiological tables and so on. I, let's be realistic. Sure. But I do mean having some kind of critical thinking about what are they doing in other countries? What are we doing here? Well, isn't it strange that we're doing something out of step, significantly out of step with everywhere else? And, um, you know, given that there are two different groups of experts saying two different things. How do I adjudicate between those two groups? And um, for, for a while, anyway, in the UK, it didn't seem like there was a huge amount of that going on. I, I, there, there was some, um, and there were some people being, I think, reasonably reasonably critical of what the government's doing. And now the government's changed its position anyway. So um, now now the questions are a bit more nitty-gritty. But um, yeah, it's it's been, it's been a bit jarring, I think. It's always a bit jarring when you see people that you kind of think that you share similar opinions um, with, and and yet you think that they are kind of massively out of step with what you think is kind of almost obviously true, and kind of missing the point. Yeah, a lot of the time. Although to be fair, I think to all of us, I'm not an epidemiologist, virologist, immunologist. I'm not. You're an economist. I'm not. But it is okay. We're used to people going on Facebook and Twitter and even on television and making absolutely solid, confident pronouncements about things that they effectively know nothing about. The problem is here: you can get two people who are eminently credentialed, obviously expert, and speaking in good faith, and yet holding absolutely different positions. And that's that's a problem for for the ordinary consumer. It is, yeah, it is. And I mean, to some extent, you have to assume that there is a lot of information that you're missing yes um so you know i i thought it was really really um really worrying when initially it appeared that the government's plan was to kind of let 60 percent of the population get get it and um, to try to shield the kind of most at-risk groups because i thought that well even if 60 percent of the people who get it are all quite young and they're say under 50 or something like that that's still quite a large mortality rate um and that seemed to me to be kind of sort of obviously like a bad idea, even even if it went according to plan. 
Um, and since then, we've changed we've changed course and so on. So um, I think in that case, it did seem as if the the authorities made the wrong call, um, given that they changed their minds. But generally, yeah, you do have to kind of reserve judgment. And and obviously, as I, I mean, I'm not, not an epidemiologist. I have no understanding of epidemiology really. Um, beyond beyond the tiny amount that I've read to try and just understand what's going on a bit better. Yeah. Um. So so in general, yes, one does have to kind of suspend judgment, but I think you can still uh, it's still noteworthy when two different groups of experts disagree with each other, and and there's still room for um a layperson trying to try to kind of adjudicate between those two positions. Ultimately, I think we're left with a choice where we say, okay, what are the outcomes if this is wrong? If we're wrong on this, and it's it's an uncomfortable position for modern man to be in a situation where it's patently obvious there is no actual positive choice. That what we're trying to adjudicate is between two bad choices. Well, that's 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 actually a very very good point because that that gets that also kind of we'll talk about it later on when we talk about this economic question. Um, but a lot of people are forgetting that the counterfactual when it comes to this shutdown is not no shutdown. Um, you know, a lot of people are forgetting that if the government was doing nothing, a lot of people would individually choose to stay at home and they would individually choose to keep their kids at home and not go to work and so on. And um, so a lot of the shutdown that is kind of currently being imposed by the state um, would be happening spontaneously anyway, um, which would then have these very negative knock-on economic effects. So I think that's a really, really important point. And it's something that when I disagree with people, and again, we'll get to this later on, but when I criticize, you know, when I disagree and I'm quite supportive of the government shutdown, um, I think that people that I'm disagreeing with are underestimating how bad the counterfactual would be just in economic terms, you know, before we even get to the number of people who would get this disease and die of it and so on. And, and that, I think actually to me that is, that, that counterfactual is the central point for for me, for the of the convincing part of the, most of the argument, but just I want to just look at a couple of things. Uh, I think a lot of people, it's a, it's a truism or a cliche that we hear, where you can't put a price on someone's life. Hmm. And I understand, shall we say, the emotional moral force of that statement. But that's a, if you, you're, a, I know you're a utilitarian. Uh, I I I am a virtue ethics kind of guy, but if if we can suspend that for a moment, there 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 is an element to all moral statements, which is in a sense performative. There they are emotional statements, perhaps some would say rather than factual statements. But the fact is that we do all the time that when we design trains, I think this is true, is it not that we train motor cars, trains, airplanes, any kind of thing. We we reach a certain point. We say okay, we've made it safe up to this point after this point if we make it any safer then the costs are going to be so prohibitive that it won't actually represent a benefit to society so we could make it that it would be 10 lives safer but i'm speaking crudely here but we do actually do it now one of the points of disagreement you had with hugo was the way that uh, how you est- how do you go about estimating the value of a life there are a few different ways of doing it and um the, the core concept here is what's called the value of a statistical life. And um, as you said, it's it's a kind of repugnant concept to think that we would want to monetize people's um, the value of people's lives. But as you say, for example, if we're talking about the NHS, if the NHS has to decide whether to fund a drug or not, um, the NHS, the world has scarce resources. So we need to have some kind of benchmark to say, OK, it's probably not worth spending 10 million pounds on a drug that extends somebody's life by one week. Um, on the other hand, it probably is worth spending 10,000 pounds on a drug that extends somebody's life by two years. Um, and you need some kind of way of knowing. 
at what point are you willing to spend that kind of money? Yeah. And that goes across government. <clears throat> so it's not just, so, it, so as you said, it's, it's also in decisions to do with transport. Um, the government in the UK's general figure is £60,000 per life year. Um, so we're not just looking at the value of a life, we're looking at the value of a life year. And that would say that we, that, that means that in general, we would prefer if we had to make the decision between saving an elderly person who may die in the next three or four years to a very, to a young child who has their entire lives ahead of them. We tend to think that it's, it's more valuable to save the young child because they have more life years ahead of them so that they can, so that there's sort of more, um, more left for them to, for them to live. So the, so the value of a life year can be established by looking at lots of different things. So you can, you can do surveys that look at what are people willing to give up themselves in exchange for extending their lives. Um, you know, how, how much extra risk are people willing to take when it comes to, say, driving to work or particular, uh, spending their own money on particular drugs and things like that? Um, and what are the different, um, things in people's behavior that allow us to kind of look at what are they willing to give up? To extend their lives by a year, let's say. Um, so, so, so that's the kind of question of the value of a statistical life year. But then we have the question of a quality adjustment to that, because not only are not only from the government's point of view, and this is especially true when it comes to medicine. Not only are we trying to look at the number of life years, we're trying to look at the value of those life years to the people who who we're thinking about. So um, this is this can become very controversial, and again, it's very it's a very awkward thing to have to think about. Mm-hmm. But for but for example, if the NHS is trying to decide between um, giving a life saving drug to somebody who's going to be in excruciating pain for the rest of their lives and be bedridden and be unable to to walk around, um, or maybe they'll be kind of ex- extremely un- unhappy for that period, yes. they they would they would downweight. They would kind of consider that. The, those two, the, maybe if it gives two years, we'll kind of downweight that to one year. Um, that's called a quality adjusted life year. Um, making make, once you've made that quality adjustment, uh, and it's a very very sensitive subject for obvious reasons. Um, nobody wants to think about themselves being more uh, or less kind of valuable to the state um, or to society yes. because of the pain they might they might be in, or because of the, um, the the kind of things and so on that might might be reducing their quality of life sure. but when you when you have a when you have a system that's based on rationing which which kind of ha- it has to be based on rationing given we don't have unlimited resources to spend on healthcare yeah um you need to be able to make those kind of calls sure so so what we have so one of the things now the the numbers that that you and and toby are using are based on the study from imperial college yeah to mostly, mostly. yeah mostly and the, as i understand it that was the study that changed the direction of government policy. Correct, it, yeah. Because it suggested that there would be 500,000 fatalities um, if the government did nothing, um, but there would be 250,000 fatalities if the government brought in um, kind of moderate suppression uh, measures, and that, that 250,000 would fall to 20,000 if the government brought in the kind of lockdown that we're talking about at the moment. So the debate between um, Toby and I is um, that kind of wedge between the two hundred fifty thousand and the twenty thousand. So, in other words, two hundred thirty thousand. In a sense, you're um, talking about what, what? What is the value? What is the cost? Amongst other things, of those two of saving two hundred thirty thousand lives. Yeah. So you have to, and it's as we to repeat ourselves. And say, we understand that for many people, this may sound like a cruel and almost immoral kind of discussion, but it's something a discussion that ha- that happens all the time. 
uh, not in publicly, but it has to happen. We have limited resources. Because there are people on the other side of this as well. That's the that's the key point. I mean, the, there is a seen benefit and a seen cost to everything we do, and then an unseen benefit and an unseen cost. And the unseen cost of shutting down the economy is that many people will be will lose their jobs, um, is that we'll have less money and less resources to spend on um, other things, uh, which includes healthcare for people, yeah. people who are perhaps dying of other diseases. Um, you know, all of these things have costs and benefits. And in order to make a decision about what we should do, we need to have some kind of way of weighing up the costs of each decision and the benefits of each decision so that we can we can judge whether it's worth it overall. Um, it is. It's, it's very difficult, but I, I mean, it does have to be done. And particularly in a crisis like this is, this is when it becomes out from behind the curtain and, and which we, 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 in a sense we see others. I mean, if I understood him right, and I think this is, a, this, it's, uh, Toby does something which I find odd. Um, when he talks about life expectancy, he says that the life expectancy initially, is the average life expectancy is 81, 81 and a half. And that since the average age of uh, those people who are dying is 79 and a half. He talks that that he ascribes, so he gives these people, so they would only have had another year to live. So you're talking about an extra year of life. But I remember when I was in, in doing my, I, I, I have, I did some work in, in uh, based on 19th century demographics anyway, but the point was that it was, it was obvious thing. When you wanted to look at life expectancy in the real world, you could look at the, the, the gross figure, which is just the average age. Yeah. Simple average. But in the 19th century, and this is probably still true today, the first five years of life are the most dangerous. And if you look at the average life expectancy at birth, but then you, you, if you say, okay, you, if, if you can get to the age of five, your uh, average life expectancy is radically changed. Yeah. And it's, yeah. if you get to the right, and surely if you, I think, and this is the point you make, if, if you get to 80, your average life expectancy is not 81, but rather I think you said around 89. Yes. No, I think that, yes. I, I think that's an odd mistake to make because it seems to, I'm not, to the extent I'm anything at all of a, 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 a low-grade historian, but it seems that that's a kind of a basic. And nine years is a hell of a lot of years. And and if that sounds counterintuitive to people, consider if we were looking at height. Um, suppose we had a group of uh, we we had a group of people, and we knew that the average height of that group of people was six foot one. But then we decided to only look at the people who are over six foot. So we put we, we cut out all of the people who are under six foot. Now, of that group of people who are over six foot, do we still expect their average height to be six foot one? No, because we've taken out all these other people who are dragging down the average. Yeah. So it's it's very, very similar. If we look at um, people who are who are on average seventy nine or eighty, then their their life expectancy is much longer than what the overall average is, because we're not, we've already cut out the people who will die before getting to that age. And, um, you know, the, it's quite an important point. And I think Toby has um, kind of admitted that he made that mistake, um, not, not, not as explicitly as I think he probably should, but I think he has more or less admitted that that was a mistake. Um, but it's also worth noting that the, that the 79.5-year-old age is really, really not certain. Um, it's, it comes from a fairly early report from Italy, um, it doesn't reflect the UK. Um, we now have, at the time of recording this, about 550 people every day dying of this. Um, we don't have a demographic breakdown of their average age. It could be younger than this. And as the numbers increase, we should expect the average age to fall as well. Um, so there, so there are all sorts of factors that make me think that that's not very. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't 
bet a huge amount of money that that's the correct figure. There may be particular demographic factors at work in Italy, which yes, will skew exactly. the skew that, and which will, will be different to the. Can you? I, I'm asking you something which I haven't we didn't mention before. So if you don't know, please. That's I I, I apologize. One of the things that puzzles me, Joe blogs, and I know that puzzles a lot of people is. We we see a lot of examples of this. Instead of talking about the average, they talk about the median age. Yes. Why is that? Um, well, median um, may be able to solve some of the problems that come from having um, extremes. So so I think median tends to be less useful um, if everything is sort of distributed normally. Um, if everything is, you know, you have just as many people at the top as you do at the bottom, um, it, you don't have real outliers. But if you have big outliers... Um, so if you have, um, let's say, uh, a few people living to, you know, their hundreds or something like that, yeah. then that can skew, that can drag the average in a way that median, because median just takes the person in the middle. Um, so the median just looks at whoever is in the middle, that, that whatever value is right for them, that's the, um, that's the, that, that's the median. And so that allows us to, um, avoid the kind of average being dragged by a few extremes that that kind of would that should be sort of taken out we should really just take out outliers like that so try to find an average the median is the point between the the youngest and the oldest halfway it's it's the no it's the yeah it, yeah so so if we have 100 people the median is the person at number 50 of you know in between 50 and um, 49 or 51 um the the median basically allows us to... If you imagine you have a desert island um, where we have 10 people um, and 9 out of those 10 people all have £10 pounds each, but the 10th person has a million pounds, right? Yeah. So so it, it, it may be useful to look at the average. The average there is going to be something like £100,000 each. Um, but if we're trying to find out what the living standards for the person, for the kind of the, the person in the middle right. is, so if we're trying to find out what the what the kind of middle living standards are like, then it's it's often more useful to look at the median number because that avoids that that single person, that one outlier who has a huge amount of money, from dragging the average up and um, and skewing what everybody's result looks like. So a bit a bit like Irish GDP. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So median G, median GD median income can be um, more useful if you have an unequal society um, that's very top-heavy, for example, then median can be a more useful way of looking at what living standards are like for people at the middle than um, average. So, uh, for example, I think in, in, in Italy, the median age for the affected is 63. But the for that, for those who's older, it, it, for those who die, it's older. Again, the median age. Actually, I think the median age was was pretty close to the average initially. It wouldn't. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I haven't looked into the numbers enough to to make a judgment. But um, I, it's not obvious to me why we would prefer to look at median to to mean or average as we as as you might normally call it. So, anyway, first point in this in your argument is to say that actually, Toby first of all underestimates the value of a life year. Yes. So the so the first the first point is that. Um, we talked earlier about the way the NHS has to do a form of rationing to decide what drugs to fund and what treatments to fund. Um, now, the NHS has very limited resources, and so the number that it has to settle on is not necessarily the same as the number that we would decide that we as individuals would be willing to pay. So so the NHS's number goes up to about £30,000. So a drug treatment that will extend somebody's life by, by one year, they're willing to spend up to about £30,000 
per year of life that that um, drug treatment will will extend you by. Um, now, on a social level, kind of from the point of view of society and from the point of view of the government in general, the number is double that. It's £60,000 per life year. So it looks as if people personally would be willing to give up £60,000 worth of money, resources, whatever, to extend their own lives. Right. So that discrepancy is, I think, very interesting and, and actually probably suggests that we're spending too little on healthcare in the UK. Um, it may be that we could do that more efficiently through the private system and so on. It's not necessarily to a, a straightforward argument to give more money to the NHS, but the fact that, that we're spending quite considerably less on drug treatments than it seems that people are willing to spend themselves on their own, uh, on extending their own lives, um, does suggest that we're, we're underspending on healthcare. But if, but, but if we're trying to decide whether from a social point of view, whether from the point of view of society, we're willing to, um, do a, do a shutdown to extend people's lives by this number of life years, then, um, it makes sense to look at, well, by, by people's own judgments, what are they personally willing to give up in order to extend their lives? And, um, so for that reason, I think using the smaller figure um, is, is significantly underestimates how much people think their lives are worth to them. And so underestimates how much people are willing to give up from a financial point of view, um, from the point of view of the economy, to extend their lives or the lives of their family members or their grandparents or friends or whoever it might be. So there are two issues that come together. One is the value we put on each life year. And then also the fact that because of the, the uh, 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 shall we say, flaw of the mathematics, he actually underestimates the number of life years we're talking about. And therefore, if you, when you, when you do the arithmetic, he comes out with a, the, the, the value of those 230,000 lives, the actual economic value that he estimates he gives to that is lower than it otherwise should be. Now, in a yes. sense, that's a, that, shall we say, that's a, a more technical thing. But a point you adverted to there, I think it's a key thing because I think it's being missed all the time. Uh, a point that I've been trying to make less successfully, I think, than yourself is that we, we have a government shutdown. If you have an extensive level of contagion of this, uh, the virus, a non say uncontrolled or, or limited control, the virus will impose its own shutdown. Yes, I think that's really, really crucial to understand because that means that the counterfactual is not business as usual. So not only are we, not only um, is Toby, and I don't want to kind of pick on him too much, but not only is Toby um, undercounting the cost of um, the the cost of kind of letting people die by 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 a very significant factor by by a factor of eighteen times. If he's undercounting their lives by nine years and um, and undercounting the value of a life here uh, by half, then he's 18, 18 times under what the actual figure is. And then on the other side of it, he and some other people, I think, are assuming that the counterfactual is business as usual. Um, and you just think yourself, if you're if you're listening, if if this pandemic was going around, if there are you know hundreds of thousands of people in the UK, tens of thousands of people in Ireland dying of this, um, many people will be tempted to take their kids out of school. Many people will probably not be able to get childcare for them. They'll, they'll probably stay at home from work themselves. Many people will not want to go to restaurants. Many people will not want to go to bars and so on. People will individually reduce their economic activity. So, so the, the counterfactual is still pretty bad and the counterfactual is still quite a bit of economic shutdown plus many, many, many more deaths from the, from the virus. So um, it's a it's a it's very misguided, I think, and kind of really fails to think about the counterfactual in a in a in a rigorous way. 
to um, imagine that business as usual is the is the choice that we have. I remember reading just as a short, short thing, but there was back I think in the fifties a polio outbreak which was centered in Cork, and uh, the uh, the writer was was based in Yall at the time, and he said, and this was without any kind of actually official restrictions. Great, I think of, of any great significance happening. Commerce from outside Cork just stopped. People wouldn't go. Yeah, people were terrified of going to court. They said, yeah. "No, no, I'm not." There was, and that makes perfect sense. If you think that, you know, not everybody will think. And certainly, I, I, I don't doubt that the, the mixed up, the mixed up, uh, economic opportunities will be less, than would happen than is happening at the moment. But the notion, but I think that people are just leaving out that chunk of that. I myself, okay, I'm over fifty and I have asthma. I'm going to be careful about myself. The fact is I'm not going, and, and there, anybody, people like me are simply not going to put themselves in positions if they think that they're going to have a heightened risk of exactly. attracting this. Yeah, exactly. Older people, it, it, it is going to have a significant effect and, the, and missed opportunities. But then if we get back on, we, we move on, I think that the, you also, I think, make, shall we say, what is apparently not an economic point, but I think that it, to try and completely divorce a simple economic equation from the effect of seeing large numbers of people die and the effect that that will have potentially on the social fabric is really naive. Yeah, I think, and I think a, a proper cost-benefit analysis would capture that. Um, you know, I want to be clear that my article and my attempt to kind of reason through the numbers is not an attempt myself at doing a cost-benefit analysis. It's just an attempt to assess this other version of a cost-benefit yeah. analysis that I think is very deficient. Um, and just sort of point out that even on his own terms, a lot of his a lot of his numbers don't add up. Um, but I but I I think that you know it would be a very very big undertaking to do a real cost-benefit analysis. But I think even a very very loose one that ignores. The things you're talking about, the the kind of misery of seeing, you know, a grandparent die, perhaps die alone because they can't be, they can't receive medical treatment. That that misery is is something that, uh, like I haven't accounted for. I think it's difficult to account for, but is obviously something that almost everybody who's in their right minds would want to avoid, um, and would do a huge amount to avoid if they could. If you don't mind, I'm going to quote in in, in total a, a, a paragraph from your article here. For the listener, and by the way, this is available online at thecritic.co.uk, uh, uh, and I, I recommend that. And to be fair, you should read Toby's art. People should read Toby's article as well and read your own. Uh, in this paragraph, you say, in a scenario where hundreds of thousands of people were dying, the NHS would become overwhelmed, and the average age of people would likely fall. So the number of life years lost is probably an underestimate, and possibly an enormous one, if the average death. Average age of death fell as the NHS had to prioritise younger patients. And the misery involved would be appalling. It would mean people dying in their beds alone at home, some of dehydration and starvation alongside their pneumonia, with no palliative care of any kind. Now, we've heard stories this week of what's been happening in Spain, in some care homes. I think that without getting overly speculative, that we can think that it is possible this kind of thing, the faith that people would have in government, in, shall we say, the system with a capital S, we are already seeing shifts and changes in our political, in the political geography of the world in the West. 
I think that this, an apparent failure to try, to care, to intervene, to manage at that level, I think could potentially be enormously destabilizing and dangerous. Yeah, I think that's right. And with good reason, I would say as well. I mean, I would, I would be extremely, um, extremely angry if I thought the state was allowing thousands and thousands of elderly people to die um, for the sake of a misguided um, kind of attempt to kind of keep the economy going. I think it would be, um, I think it's just overwhelmingly clear to me that the costs of shutting down the economy for, for a period, not, for, not indefinitely, for a period of a few months, um, in order to control the spread of this, um, is worth it. There's a point you make, which I think is the other point, which I think is perhaps missed, but I think is absolutely central, not just, the, which is time. You, you say that uh, the time we are buying ourselves is incredibly valuable, and the case for giving it up is... Now, okay, I think if we're being realistic, uh, while we have people talking about vaccines in very short periods of time, I don't know. I've spent my life reading articles about people who have come up with incredible uh, treatments for X, Y, and Z, and then three yeah. years later, nothing has happened because that's the nature of science and medicine. And I, I, I think it's it's probable that they will produce a vaccine, but whether or not they're going to produce it in any sort of rapid way. But we are seeing all sorts of drugs, old drugs, new drugs, combinations of drugs that are proving to be effective at some level. We are beginning to understand, we are educating people, the populations are, are, under, are, be, are, 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 are be, understand how to behave correctly, how to be, to minimise, because, I, 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 do you think this is part of the, or could be part of the plan, is that, okay, we have a shutdown, we try, and, to the extent that we can try and, con- we control the contagion at this stage. It's not that we will necessarily go back into simply normal economy, but that, with certain with new protocols in place, with whether it's a, and issues regarding whether it's disinfection or or social distancing, that we can start to reopen parts of the economy piece by piece, as we understand the virus better, as we train people in behaviour better. That it's not the case that it'll be it, this is one or the other, but rather that we can gradually start to reopen the economy in in a, in a way that is safe, and. We also, at the time, it gives us time to build respirators, to create ICU, ICU units. If we think about this, I mean, there are, there are a few stages to this. One is, as you've said, this learning process. Um, you know, and the, the, in the last few days, it's become more and more clear. And I think we're about to, we're, we have an imminent announcement from the US government that there will be an advice that people wear masks when they're in public. And this is in direct contradiction of the previous advice. Um, which you know, let's not even go there as to why that was the advice. But um, if we're if we're only now learning that we can quite significantly reduce the spread and the, the infectiousness of the disease by having people wear masks, that's something that the last two weeks has actually brought us. You know that this last two weeks has brought us the time to learn this. Um, now there's going to be a period where we need to ramp up production of masks. Now there's going to be a time where we need to ramp up production of testing. Um, there's going to be a, a period where we try to figure out how we can do contact tracing. When we know that somebody has been diagnosed with it, we need to find every person that they've been with and every person around them who potentially has the disease and test them as well, and so on and so on. And if we can do things like that, then we can get to a place in the same kind of position. And I don't want to um, suggest that these places have no problems at all, but they're, they're in a more normal position than we are, like South Korea, Hong Kong, 
Singapore, for example, Taiwan. Countries that where, are incredibly urban, incredibly densely populated. You very think? much so, yeah, very much so. I, I have a friend who, who had just spent a week in a um, Hong Kong quarantine, um, not because he had the disease, but because uh, a, a person he know um, was diagnosed with the disease. He was required to go to a quarantine. Um, you know, it wasn't quite like a prison, but he wasn't allowed to leave, so... Um, it was it was certainly <laughs> no, closer yeah. to a prison than anything I've ever been to. It's not a prison, and, um, but you, is this, am I? No, you, it's not a prison, and, and but you, you can't leave. So yeah, it's a well, distinction. <laughs> and and you know, I hope that I hope that it doesn't get to that point for us. Uh, but um, you know, there, there are there are me- me- measures that we have not brought in that may we may decide that it's preferable to either strongly advise that people go to these quarantines um, or, or require them if it becomes that kind of emergency. Um, these are things that we can do to, and, and, and just rolling out testing everywhere to pick up the where the disease is, to trace its spread, to stop it from um, having this exponential spread that, that it's had so far. Um, but it will take time to roll these things out and it will take time to decide what are the things that we do want to do, what are the things that we don't think are worth doing. Um, and the... Uh, I, I, the, the next few months, I think, of, of lockdown will buy us that time, I hope. Now, one thing that people who have been who are supportive of this very restrictive approach are accused of is being hysterical. Massive overreaction. Let's face it, it's not much more than the flu. Mortality rates are probably like only 0.9. They're not like what they're saying, which would still be nine times worse than the, than the flu. But... And I think that people forget that actually nine times worse than the flu would still be a hell of a lot of dead people. Is it... Uh, when I read, say, Brendan O'Neill, and I think Brendan is usually good value on a lot of stuff, you know, he's always... Uh, you know, Brendan is, uh, Brendan's are useful in, in society. Um, but on today, for example, Brendan says 10 million Americans have been added to the unemployment figures over the past fortnight. This is without precedent in human history. A million more have... Britons have claimed universal credit, a fancy name for poverty assistance over the past week. Now, I could say that poverty assistance is a fancy name for universal credit. (laughs) Yeah, quite. But anyway, Brendan and others are painting this apocalyptic vision of the the long term ec- economic consequences of this shutdown. Now I'm going to ask you a question, which and I want you to respond kindly. To the to the I am the man in the Clapham omnibus, the man in the street. Now what I don't get is this sense we're talking about. Oh, this is going to be as bad as the Great Depression. No, when I think the Great Depression was largely caused by misguided government intervention and lots of things that Roosevelt's government did. We believe bad that. monetary policy. I think yeah. Sorry. Bad monetary policy. Oh, dreadful monetary policy, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. Also, I mean, creating laws in when a country is in economic uh, crash and people have no money, to introduce laws saying putting a minimum price on the price of a chicken and what you, mandating farmers to plough food back into the land because it didn't meet the price. Where you set the price of gold literally out, out off the top of your head. Leaving that aside, okay, the Second World War happened, right? It consumed, in a way, I mean, actually destroyed capital in a way which is unimaginable. Factories, machines, human capital, millions and millions of people. It destroyed the infrastructures of countries. And yet, within a couple of years, 
the economies were, 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 had recovered and were doing quite well. I mean, how is it possible that this kind of downturn, with this kind of, where we're, we're not going to, in my understanding at the moment anyway, we're not going to blow up the factories or burn down the bars and the restaurants. We're not going to go take all the waiters and the waitresses out and shoot them behind the, out the alley. These people, I mean, when, these are ten percent. How is this going to be worse than the Second World War? Or am I missing something? I well, yeah. I I think I think you're right. I think that the very dramatic numbers of unemployed are something we should be very worried about. Um, and I'll and I'll go back to that in a minute. But um, I think you're right that just looking at the numbers of unemployed. Um, ignores the fact that lots and lots and lots of the businesses that are making those people unemployed are fundamentally solvent and fundamentally viable without this crisis. So given that they are fundamentally viable in, let's say, with the crisis ends in six months' time, most of the businesses that were viable prior to this shutdown will become viable again. The same sort of patterns of behavior that led to them being profitable and able to employ people will return. Um, we think that life is more, mostly going to get back to normal, so those businesses should become profitable again. Now, the the danger and the reason that very unusually, I'm a I'm a I'm a real free marketeer, but in in general, um, I think that recessions are periods where we need to let businesses go out of business, we need to let new ones come up, and so on. In this case, I don't think that. In this case, I think that what we're looking at is effectively we should be trying to put these businesses into cold storage. Um, so what we should be trying to do is allowing businesses to shut down as if it's summertime in a in a kind of European city. Or it's in a, August in, a, in Milan. Or if it's the off-season, yeah, exactly. Or if it's the off-season in a holiday town. Um, so allow those businesses to continue to exist and the employment contracts that they have to continue, but for them to not have to make the kind of outgoing payments or for the government or the taxpayer to put, pick up the bill temporarily for those outgoing payments that they have. Does, they would otherwise have to go bust to uh, because they couldn't afford to make does it make because any... what we would lose yeah. just just to Sorry. what we would lose if those businesses go out of business you're right that we were we aren't losing the building but what we are losing if they go out of business is the kind of entrepreneurial recipe that has gone into making that business exist um so it's so it, it takes it takes a lot of entrepreneurialism but this is i think this is the the danger yeah the danger is that the the kind of entrepreneurialism that goes into pick, into employing those people is lost because those people have to be made redundant. They find other jobs, and then there's a much much longer, more difficult readjustment period where those business owners have to try and find new new staff. They have to experiment with new people, and so on. And uh, that's why I favour this kind of cold storage approach, um, whereas I usually would not. No, no. I I I, I to be clear, I I, I absolutely agree. With, I think that we. Very often, bad companies, it's a bit like Tolstoy said, all happy families are happy in the same way, all unhappy are different. I think bad companies tend to be badly run in the same way. Successful businesses are rather mysterious combinations yeah. of of synchronicities and synergies. And that it, there's an understanding, there's experience, there's creativity, all those things which come together to make a successful business. And when it's gone, it's gone. And that that, that w- it would be terribly injurious uh, to us, I'm. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine in in Milan, who has uh, makes furniture. Like a lot of people, initially make very very nice furniture, and his business. He's a very good business, but he sells his inevitably. Like he sells his furniture in shops, and there are no shops open. And I think that there we have to. The government has, the the governments have to find a way of supporting those businesses. Does it make any difference? I mean, this is just a question. That normally, I said, our uh, 
recessions are demand side the demand declines people stop wanting to buy things because of various reasons and business discouragement that this is in a sense a supply side recession does that make any difference yes it does um usually a supply side recession usually a demand side recession um i would say is i'm a, I'm a kind of milton friedman follower is is something that we can attribute to bad monetary policy it's a it's a central bank failing to loosen policy when it needs to um when it's a supply side recession Usually what we want to happen is that we do want the businesses to go out of business. So, for example, a supply-side recession could be caused by a big hike in the price of oil. And in that case, we do want businesses that are intensive, that intensively use oil. Some of those businesses should go out of business because it's no longer economically viable for them to exist. Um, when it's a, a demand-side recession, we can appropriately respond by loosening monetary policy, lowering interest rates, doing quantitative easing, whatever it might be, because we're trying to keep the overall amount of demand, monetary demand, um, steady in the economy. Um, in a supply-side recession, there's not that much you can do on the monetary policy side. And usually, there's really no government response that you want. Usually, you know, the as long as the macro economy is overall stable through monetary policy, there's not that much you need to do other than, you know, give people unemployment insurance, make sure that they're not in, you know, on the streets if they lose their jobs and things like that, and facilitate that kind of rearrangement of workers and capital from businesses that are no longer viable to new businesses. In this case, though, obviously, we don't want to do that. So the, I think the appropriate response is to either just say to businesses, we'll pick up your wage bill, or to say to businesses, we will subsidize you in exchange for you keeping your wage bill what it was, keeping your keeping all your staff on and so on. That issue, that issue regarding how countries like obviously ireland uh, is heavily indebted um we have our own theories about precisely whose fault that is it's some of it is our fault some of it i think we can we can attribute to uh, other people we won't get into that again <laughs> we won't discuss private groups but take italy obviously which is one uh, italy right now is facing the potential of an absolute of a social catastrophe, of an economic catastrophe. And what the, the listener may, may or may not be aware of, there is a debate going on at the heart of Europe at the moment about how Europe should respond collectively to this. Italy is massively indebted. It can still borrow money on the market at reasonable rates, but how long that will go on will, to an extent, I suppose, depend on the signals it gets from Europe and from the ECB and others. There is a desire to, there's a discussion at the moment whether or not something called a euro bond should be issued. And a euro bond is, the the problem, shall we say, that's perceived with the euro bond is that everybody contributes to it, but everybody, everybody pays it off. So in a sense, uh, you have Italy in trouble, but the frugal Finns and the sensible Dutch end up paying off this money which the uh, these guys in the south have had to borrow because they haven't been sensible in the past and they don't like that i don't know what the real answer i mean the other there there's a fund there there are monies that are available which could be released under the stability mechanism but i do you think i i, I as i do any anyway, i think there's a if europe doesn't meet this challenge in a way which if that suggests that it is actually something more than simply a trading block. Europe insists that it is more than that. It says it's, it is an idea. It's a, 
it is a union, it's all of these things. Yet, we saw the, <laughs> the first thing Germany did was stop people exporting all of the necessary, all the, the protective, protective stuff. You know, the borders have become suddenly back in vogue in Europe and Germany has been amongst the forefront of these and the Germans have, themselves have been very careful about monetary policy. It's going to be very hard to maintain the fiction of Europe as something more than a trading bloc if there isn't some kind of a solidarity reaction. If it's a family, well, you know, and Uncle Frank is down on the skids again and he's in hospital. Somebody has to pay the hospital bills. Well, you pay them. You don't like it. You you, you think, isn't it time that Uncle Frank kind of got himself together? But, you know, you don't let Uncle... You don't chuck him out on the street. Yeah, I mean, there's also, I mean, the main argument against eurobonds in general is obviously this moral hazard point that if you allow Greece to or Ireland, let's say, to borrow at the at the price that Germany can borrow, then they will borrow too much, knowing that they will um, that, that 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 their borrowing costs won't rise, and that they are kind of being bailed out by German taxpayers in that case. They'll borrow it and spend it on ice cream. Yeah, but that moral hazard case doesn't apply to this situation. Um, so there, I think it would be entirely reasonable to create a kind of discrete amount of um, bor- borrowable funds, um, unified in the kind of eurobond way, just for certain policies designed to relieve um, the to, to kind of support the economy in this particular situation. A kind of credibly once-off um, mechanism that doesn't um, euro bondify every bit of borrowing that every government does in perpetuity, but just for this particular situation, because it's in everybody's interest. Number one, for countries that are affected by the virus, which is almost every European country now, to impose significant shutdown measures. Um, you know, Germany is not, Germany is, is better off and, and Estonia is better off for Spain and France imposing lockdown measures. It's it, controlling the virus there is good for them from a public health point of view. And it's also good from a from a European Union point of view to make sure that the governments that do this don't experience massive recessions afterwards. Um, so I think that whatever the arguments against eurobonds are in general, they don't apply here. Okay, I want to just finish up on on just one one thing that you've already referred to, because it's become a bit of a a debating point here, and it's a point of, I think slightly of confusion when. When the virus was coming, rather than had come, we heard. I remember coming out of Dublin on the radio, and there was a discussion about the use of masks, and they said, "Oh, well, masks are useless in this case because unless you're going to get these very, very high-grade, military-style masks, that the virus is able to penetrate the mesh and these things, whatever." Right, and since then, this the line has been from the WHO and from the HSC here, and I think possibly from Public Health England. That masks are not useful. In the most recent bout, the phrase used by the HSE here is the evidence does not support. But is that true anymore? There was an an article which I saw you commenting on, uh, written uh, by James Abelok, um, Judy Chevalier, N.A. Christakis, who I know, and other people, shall we say, and and. Chair of Epidemiology at Yale and Esmond Dean of Public Health. And just can you give in synthesis the case for the case for or against the mask, or is that case now is that discussion in sense should that be well, over? The yeah, I think I think the case seems like it should be over because putting to one side the question where I think it does seem ambiguous based on my reading, and again I'm not a, I'm not an expert, but my reading of experts 
um, as to how useful is a mask at protecting the mask wearer from disease, the, the unambiguous evidence is that for asymptomatic carriers of the disease, wearing a mask makes it much less likely that they will spread the disease to other people. I, so, sorry, that's, so I just wanted... wearing a mask is a way of protecting others from yourself, um, as well as possibly protecting you from others. So I just want um, to get that point there, there's a very clear, because you used the phrase there, and that's really important because you said asymptomatic, and we, we don't know, but there are lots of people who believe that a hell of a lot of people may be infected and not know they are infected. They may be asymptomatic. Correct, so, exactly. Having or, a, or they may be in the early stages, so they may, they may not yet be showing symptoms, but they, but they may later develop symptoms. But if those people were wearing masks, their capacity to infect other people would be significantly reduced. Yes. So even if and it's it, not about protecting me from others, it's about protecting others from me. Right, exactly. And the, this paper that um, Jason Abeluk and others have, have written estimates that even if mask wearing reduces the transmission probability by only 10%, um, and that's, that's quite low, they think it's quite a lot more than that, the value of each cloth mask that people wear is between $3,000 and $6,000 per person. So that's incredibly high. If you think about the benefit you are giving to society by wearing a mask is between 3000 and 6000 it's 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 like making a charitable donation of between three thousand and six thousand by wearing a mask. Um, it's and and it's probably a lot more than that, given that the protective value they estimate is closer to forty to fifty percent than ten percent. So you could be you could be talking about enormous, you know, thirty thousand dollars. And it's important to say we're talking about cloth masks here. We're not talking about the higher higher grade masks the with the, the respirators whatever we're talking about ordinary cloth masks the kind of which we could produce easily in large numbers and without taking away the higher quality uh, protective equipment from people in in, in the medical services who may need yeah. them yeah um and you know i i think that the time is perhaps coming for people to start making cloth masks at home if they have a sewing machine, or if they if they have somebody in their household who could do sewing, um, the 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 benefit seems to be that dramatic according to according to this study. Um, it's it's quite dramatic, and if we do get this recommendation from the American Center for Disease Control <clears throat> that people wear masks in public, then um, presumably we'll also have a very significant shift towards the production of masks like that. And I think that one thing we have to do. I think this is particularly true in countries like Britain and Ireland, as you will know. Uh, I said I remember having a conversation some weeks ago when I was beginning to change my behaviours because, as I say, I'm a, oh, uh, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm part of the target market for the virus, as it were. I said, you know, one of the things that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to start in allowing and indeed encouraging people to behave oddly, because otherwise people will will literally they will die of social social awkwardness the first night i was doing a meeting uh, with a colleague i had decided i wasn't shaking hands anymore but my colleague was embarrassed not to shake hands with people so he shook hands and i just put my hand sorry i'm not shaking hands anymore and people looked at me like as if to say god almighty what's wrong you know we have to listen. I think part of the social message has to be listen. Listen, it's okay. This is these are weird times. It's okay to be a bit weird. It's a it's a bit. Oh, it's okay to be a bit like the the, the nutter on the on the underground. We we should all be that man now. Yeah, that's that. that I mean, I had a similar experience with handshaking um, <clears throat> and refusing to shake hands 
at an event I was I was at. But um, I th- I mean I'm seeing lots of people around London when I go out for my kind of daily exercise wearing masks now. Um, it's just a question of can you get your hands on them, and also can you do so in a way that doesn't make it difficult for people who are the health professionals get can't get them. So making your own masks, I think, is probably preferable. Although, again, I have to stress I'm not an expert or an epidemiologist. Well, right now, I, I read I think the last couple of days that I don't if you know O'Neills who make a kit for the GA, they have uh, I think set up now that uh, they're going to turn over and start making cloth masks and masks of the kind, which uh, they're a pretty big company. Should be, and that, that that's the kind of thing that should be fairly easy for reverse engineering. Uh, engineering of that kind of to 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 do, um, I know a lot of people as you know, did, I did, maybe you didn't know this. I discovered this one of these fun facts, and I I have to ask you a very important question after that. Ireland produces fifty percent of the respirators in the world. Really, I didn't yeah. know that. And I I know that one questions that people are asking and not getting an answer to is, have we stopped exporting them? <laughs> <laughs> I noticed, by the way, congratulations, you had a win in a virtual table quiz. Yes. I didn't yes. know such things existed, and where can I join? I want. I, I am a table quiz addict, and I would love to go. So I, I, I'll ask, I'll, I'll get details of, of, of that off air. Listen, Sam, it's been great talking to you. Uh, you thank you for taking the time. It's been a, a real uh, uh, enlightenment. I think, I, I think I'm sure that the, our dear listener will have enjoyed it. Hopefully we may hear you back again. I know that dear listener knows you won't know Sam, but one of my hobby horses on this is minimum alcohol pricing. And oh well, mine they, as well. They grow. Well. They grow, and I think it is one of the nastiest, horriblest, classist, poor, hating, useless, uh, failures of a policy of an answer to a question that nobody's asking. And I think that you have similar views and maybe we could come back and we'll, we can kick the government around on that someday. But for the time being, I'm going to say goodbye. We will be back soon and have a good week and stay safe out there. Thank you again, Sam Bowman. Thank you and stay safe.